Hi, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Scale by Intercom. Scale is our dedicated content resource on the Inside Intercom blog, where you can find a wealth of materials, including podcasts, of course, that explore how businesses are driving growth through customer relationships. Every second week, you'll hear from guests on a range of topics, from customer experience to sales and marketing, and hear about the strategies and frameworks that they've used to chart new paths for their customers and their companies. This week, we hear from Later's VP of Customer Happiness, Farhan Virji. His background spans roles ranging from building software to building and leading teams. Over his 20-year career, he spent time in several technology startups, helping to build and scale the customer-facing teams through technology, process, and people leadership. And he's also worked in both B2B and B2C environments, which gives him a unique perspective on what B2B SaaS companies can learn from their B2C counterparts. It's a really interesting chat, so let's head over to the studio and hear from Farhan. Farhan, you are so very welcome along to Scale by Intercom today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to chat with you about your work at Later, but to kick us off, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself, your 20 years of experience, and your background as a software developer? Yeah, well, thank you, Dee, for, for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. My background, um, as you outlined, started as a developer, as a software developer, where I was always loving to you know, build things. But honestly, when I started my career, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. Um, I chose the quickest path to work. And so I took a, I took a program, which was a two-year program that allowed me to get into the workforce sooner than most of my friends that spent four to five years in university. And that's really how I became a software developer. It wasn't I was aspiring to be a developer. But then the rest of my career, just things just happened on its own. I never had, you know, long-term plans of what I wanted to do. And so I had two inflection points in my career where I moved from a software developer to a project manager, managing primarily large software projects. And I got into that, an opportunity doing some volunteer work where I was project managing a large sports festival. I was, I've always been passionate about sports and opened up my eyes to this world outside of software development. And I really loved it. And so I got the opportunity to do project management at the same place I was doing software development. And I got to be involved in things outside of the tech team, you know, looking at um, communications and marketing and thinking about um, member experience, which is really the same thing as customer experience. I worked at a financial institu- financial services institution. And bringing together all these aspects, I, I really loved. Uh, and then from there, um, I still loved doing project management, being in the center of a project and, and pulling all the different people together. I joined a startup. And that was the next inflection point in my career. Being in a startup, for those that have been in a startup, you know, you get to wear multiple hats and your your job, the scope of your role is not really what your title is. I was a project manager, but I was doing so many different things. And in many startups, you get lots of opportunities to try out new things and positions change all the time. And they asked me to go and sort of bring some project management principles to the customer success team. At that time, our success team was a really small team of four or five people, which did everything from, from implementations to support. And ended up leading that team and, and growing with uh, the company, leading out the customer success organization. 
Um, and so for the last 10-ish years, I've been primarily in the customer success or customer support type roles where I've been building and leading and scaling um, small teams into larger teams, trying to stay more in the tech space. I've been primarily in, this, in the tech space, more, more recently in product-driven tech companies, whereas in the past it was financial services. So that's a bit of an overview of who I am. Yeah, that's interesting to me that you you find yourself in the kind of product-driven tech organizations. Do you think that your your background as a developer has informed your work in CX to a certain extent then? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I always attributed my success as a project manager and even to my work in CX to my technical background because, you know, from a product standpoint, you have developers that are building the product. And for me, I always love to know what's what, how things work, uh, you know, like what's under the hood and, and how, how things are put together. But more importantly, um, I have a lot more confidence in communicating with customers or people on my team when I have a level of understanding about the technical components or how things are built. Now, I by no means code anymore, um, mm. but I'm a lot, I'm, I'm, I have a, an ease of having conversations with developers and because of my development background, I have a very logical mind. You know, I, I think through things in a very logical way, which is what developers do, right? They solve complex problems. And I can, still, I can use that same foundation for when I'm trying to solve complex problems. I have nothing to do with building products. You know, process improvement, for example, is, you know, I think through it in a very logical way. As I'm approaching people leadership, um, I also think about it from a very logical um, standpoint. And so I've taken... That, uh, that training, um, and even, I wouldn't even call it training, it's just the way my, my mind works. Um, but I, all my experiences of solving complex problems as a developer into my world uh, in CX. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's the difference between, you know, knowing what the secret sauce is and when to use it and actually being able to make the secret sauce from scratch if you need to. So Farhan, we met recently at the Support Driven webinar that you'd be on and you had some really great insights around uh, customer support trends for 2021. And this was kind of born out of some survey that Intercom did recently where we surveyed 600 support leaders and revealed that many companies are turning to conversational support at the moment to manage high conversation volumes more efficiently and obviously exceed customer expectations. There was five key trends that we talked about in that webinar. So there was the move from reactive to proactive support, satisfying your customer's need for speed, how to go about supercharging team efficiency, bridging the customer expectations gap, and the perception of the shift of CX team that perception shift from cost center to value driver. I loved chatting to you about all of these, but you spoke particularly well on that first one there, that move from reactive to proactive support. Do you want to tell me how you're going about this in later and what your advice to other support leaders would be? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm fortunate in the past, I've, I've managed teams outside of just support, so the success teams, which are traditionally more of that proactive team and how we can bring in some of those experiences into the support organization where it's, as you know, typically reactive. I think, and we'll talk a little bit about this later in the podcast for the difference between B2C and, and B2B and, and later primarily more B2C organization. But from a, moving from the reactive to the proactive state, it's really around, I, there's a couple of components that I look for. One of them is really around this idea of how can we anticipate customers' issues? 
And anticipating customer issues, I also see that as a very dynamic category, right? So on one end, the customer support teams typically in, in a B2C environment have so much knowledge about our customers, how they use our product, what their pain points are, where they fumble along with using the product, that when a new feature is going to be released, for example, the support teams likely are the best team that can anticipate where our customers are going to have problems and can contribute to the testing of that feature and, and test and test cases and test scenarios can contribute even as early as the design of the feature, but also even the communication plan. Our customers reach out to us if they're confused about the communication. And so we can have a lot of input into the whole process of building the features all the way to releasing features. And so customer support teams can really have a seat at that table to provide that level of input. Again, from the mindset of knowing our customers and how to help the product teams and the marketing teams with those releases. The other area about anticipating customer issues is in your actual interactions when you're having that interaction with a user when they reach out for help, right? A lot of times we'll see patterns. We'll see patterns based off of if a customer has issue A, they're also likely to have issue B because we'll, we'll see that they reach out to us for a particular issue and two days later or two hours later, they'll reach out to us again with another issue. So if we can identify what those patterns are, then we can start to anticipate that if they reached out to us for issue A, we may as well talk to them about issue B and try and get ahead of that so that they don't have to reach out to us in the future. And I know I'm being really generic with saying issue A and B, and that's going to be really specific to your particular yeah. business, right? So for example, at later, part of our onboarding process, the self-onboarding process, is that they need to connect their Instagram account to their later accounts. And we have a lot of, lot of times we'll get issues from our users that they can't connect their Instagram account. And so they reach out to us for that. But we know customers who are unable to connect their Instagram account are not going to be able to properly enable what we call auto-publishing. And so we may as well, once we've solved, the key is you have to solve the first issue. Right? Once we've solved the issue of them connecting their Instagram account, we may as well start talking about, well, your next step is likely to be enabling auto-publish. Let me walk you through that now since I have your attention versus let you go off and see if you can figure out yourself. And most of the time they will. But the times that they don't, we're just reducing that one touch point, but we're also just improving the overall experience because we're anticipating what they're going to do next or what we'd want them to do next. So that's where we're trying to spend more time is on that anticipation of what comes next. And that's how I think the, our biggest area for churning from reactive to proactive comes in. I love that. And another thing that we, another one of those trends that you were particularly passionate about when we spoke before was number five, trend number five, that that shift of perceiving CX teams as a cost center to a value driver. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think that there is a difference in that perception between B2B companies and B2C ones? Yeah, I'm super passionate about this. And again, an area where the success organizations, customer success organizations have thrived in in the past 10 years of really making a name for why retention is extremely important to the overall success of the business, especially when you're a customer-driven organization. And there's a theme that's it's been around for a while, but it's getting a lot more momentum this year, is that retention is the new growth strategy, right? There are a lot of times your growth strategy is bringing more customers into the funnel, and retention, yes, it's important, but now there's this shift of, 
we need to be able to grow our business by retaining our customers because the leaky bucket syndrome, right? You don't want to have that. Support teams have such a huge opportunity with contributing to retention. And we do that every day in terms of providing that great service. But another, another big area that's also starting to take front, uh, again, it's not, not, not new, but it's just the momentum that's growing as it relates to how we can get more money from our existing customer base. So this idea of net revenue retention and the levers with net revenue retention is looking solely at your current customer base. And retention is one of them, so you're keeping the money they're paying you. And then customer expansion is another one, which is, are, are they spending more money with us? And that can come in different flavors. They add new products. If you have multiple products, they're adding more licenses if you're, if you're a license-based model. And again, that's, that, that expansion area is, I think, one that's underserved from a support organization because you're typically there from a reactive standpoint to solve issues. You're not there to really help customers spend more money. And I'm not suggesting our support team should turn into sales teams, but I think there's an opportunity there where because the support teams are engaging with customers, they can add more value to that interaction and that value could turn into expansion in the future. And I think there, there's a little bit of a difference between the B2C and B2B model there. The biggest one is in B2C, the support teams are typically the, the team that's having the most or the only interactions with their customers on a regular basis. Like you don't typically have account managers or CSM, uh, CS managers that are interacting with with their customers because B2C you have millions of users potentially, right? Uh, you don't typically have a sales team because you're just logging on to a website and you're, and you're subscribing to the platform. You don't have to get sold from an account person. And so support teams have such a large impact and level of influence for net revenue retention other than just product-driven net revenue retention, which is really important as well, or the marketing efforts that happen. In B2B, there's a few different roles that are interacting with the customer. And depending on what B2B is, right, you could be small business to large enterprise and the scale starts to shift more to higher touch models in terms of human interaction as you go to enterprise, right? You'll have a sales account rep, you have a CS rep, you have an implementation team, you have a support team. So there's four or five different groups of people in your organization that are having touch points with your customer. And sometimes you're having touch points with different people in the organization, not always the decision makers for are they going to renew or are they going to spend more money in B2C, the support team is typically interacting with the person that has made the decision to, to subscribe to your software. So there's, a, we have a lot more uh, ability to impact the decision makers versus in B2B. That doesn't mean that the support team doesn't have the ability to influence um, and we can talk a little bit about that as well. But just going back to this concept of being able to add value, which I call value-based support, and I've also seen it titled support-driven growth or growth-driven support, which is, again, this opportunity to first solve the issue, but then the next step is, is there a way I can add value, business value to my customer? And I think the key there is it needs to be genuine. And it's not about trying to sell your customer. And we haven't rolled this out at later. That's one of our key initiatives this year is to roll up value-based support. But the, the way we're looking at it is it's not about, let's try and upgrade them. Let's find features that would help them that makes them spend more money. It's like, no, like let's find out things 
about our customer that they're missing out on. And it maybe it's a feature that they already have in their plan. And the reason why that's important is two things. One is, if I can add more value to you, to your business, you're going to trust me more as a brand, right? You're going to say, wow, this company, they really know what they're doing. They really get my, they really get me as a business. They really get what I need to do for my business, not for me using later. So the trust just automatically increases if we do that. And two, the data that I've seen, not just in later, but just generally out there, and I'm sure you'd agree, customers who trust their brands will spend more money, even if it's more expensive than competitors, because trust is, is not something you get easily anymore with the level of competition out there, especially when it comes to service, right? The service you get from the brands you interact with is more highly correlated to what your impression of that brand is over and above what the marketing and what the product actually is. People associate the service they get with their impression of that brand. And then they talk about it, right? So I think that's where B2C has a higher, a much higher level of impact than B2B. Yeah, and I, I, I love the point that you made there around the kind of the integrity of the advice that someone might give in a CX rather than a sales setting, you know, that it's, it, it is genuine. Yeah, you do have to pay a little bit extra, but it's going to solve this problem for you rather than just it being the bottom line that you want them to pay extra. Mm-hmm. Totally. And again, I think it's not always about having to pay extra. It's about making sure that they, that we care about how to help you with your business. Right? And that, and that a lot of that is knowing your customer, what we all heard that tagline, right? Now, understanding your customer is important, but more importantly is understanding your customer's business is, is more important, right? Knowing how our product adds value to their business. And that's why I think it needs to be about adding business value, not just adding value, because adding value could come in different shapes and forms. If I'm a business owner and, you know, you were one of my software providers, D, and you came to me and said, did you know that, you know, you can do these things with our product that you already pay for and here's the value it's going to add to your business? I'd be, I'd be super impressed because you just helped me with something from my business standpoint that I may not have known existed. And I mean, this is the thing, and you've you've such great insight on this particular topic. I think because you know you you have worked in B two B companies before, and now later, as you said yourself, is predominantly B two C users. But your users currently are diverse. You know, it could be a social media influencer that you know one of your team is dealing with one day, or it could be a team in a company. Yeah. that need help using their subscription. So how does your team actually adapt on the ground to the, the, the those differences between the type of customer? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, we can be doing a better job of that because a lot of that, when you have the scale of, and it's more the volume of, of users we have, what becomes really important is having the data. So we know we're talking to an influencer versus someone in the team because uh, we because we don't always know that information. But what's key there is, is having that level of segmentation, being able to understand if I'm talking to this category of user versus a different category of user. So that's step one is, is having the data and defining what those segments are. And then step two is really making sure that the support team and really across the company, because it starts with you know all, all teams and marketing is probably one of them, is defining the persona for that segmentation, right? What's the difference between an influencer and a large brand that has a social media team? Like how, how, how is their life different from a user or customer perspective? 
Because if we don't know that, it's going to be very difficult for us to provide a different level of support. And that's where we're, we're at right now is defining our level of segmentation and those personas so that we can educate our support team on if you're, if you're talking to someone who is a social media influencer, here's what's important to them. Here's what their life is about. And here's, here's some maybe the features that best align to, to what they do or the pain points they're trying to address. Because I think it goes back to this idea of value. You really want to be able to tie your service to what's going to drive the most value. And, you know, I think there's probably two dimensions to look at it. One is the personas or the segments where we as a company are trying to understand or even define the value, the value chain or the value workflow for them. Um, but also sometimes you want to get that from the customer and we only want to want to capture what are, what are the reasons why you're using our software? What are your goals or what are you, what are your expectations? And if we know that, then we don't necessarily have to segment by category. We're just trying to deliver a service that ties to their expectations or their values. So that's another area we're trying to figure out is how do we capture that? Like how do we capture their purchase intent and the goals behind their intent and then make sure that from all aspects, you know, like the tours you might get in the product or the content you might get delivered for marketing and the service you get from support is all tailored to your purchase intent or the goals that you have for yourself. So I, I would say we're still an area we're still exploring how to do that properly. Yeah, because you kind of touched on the personalization there. You know, one of the biggest changes I think in B2C over the last decade has been the rise of much more focused propositions. You know, there's really niche offerings out there. And then that personalization of experience. And you see that in the retail sector a lot, for example. That kind of segmentation in terms of the types of customers, like is is this something that you think that B2B support teams need to be aware of as well? Absolutely. You know, I think, I think it's just as important for B2B. B2B, when I think of the difference between B2C and B2B, it's not just about volume because you could have a company that has millions of customers, even into B2B. They're just a massive company, right? To me, what I see the, the difference between B2C and B2B is if, if there's this renewal event or not. Like in B2C, it's typically a monthly subscription or maybe even an annual subscription, but there's no contracts. There's no sales contract that has to be signed and in a renewal event that has to be signed type of thing. And so that's where I see one of the big differences and the other big differences is the number of people that are interacting with the customer, like we talked about. And also just the, the expectations. Me as a business user with the software product that we use among well, in the company, I have a different set of expectations that I interact with that brand versus me as a consumer to another product where I, you know, I probably expect to get some sort of response on the weekend and, you know, it's instant gratification. So I think level of expectations are different in B2C to B2B, but the segmentation I think is extremely important because if you don't know what your customer's business is about, whether it's B2C or B2B, like again, sorry, business is the wrong, wrong word for B2C. Um, but if you don't know what, what their intentions are, what their expectations are, you're you're hoping that you're meeting their expectations with your responses versus being more be more educated and you're more you're more likely to meet their expectation because you have a better sense of that. I think it's actually more important in the B2B world, primarily because you have higher contract values, you know, renewal is a big event and support is a really big team that has the ability to influence influence the, the renewal events. I don't think there's, there may not be the same level of segmentation from a 
who services who segmentation perspective, but segmentation from how do we interact with this type of customer segmentation, I think is extremely important. Yeah. And I guess, you know, as a follow on to that, then what about a B2B CX experience where there's multiple stakeholders on the customer side? So you might be dealing with a different type of person in the company. Yeah. So one of my, one of the first startups I joined at where it was B2B and more enterprise B2B, we spent a lot of time mapping this out because uh, we had a sales team, like an accounts manager, account executive, uh, and they were the ones who were, you know, working with the decision maker on the customer. This is a large enterprise product. Then we had a customer success team. We called it customer value. We had an implementation team that was there for almost a year to two years with the customer because they would, they would implement an iteration. Then we had a support team. So we had four minimum of four touch points on our side and not always interacting with the same people on the customer side. And so we found it to be extremely important to to define the the owners of those relationships. So we said, for example, okay, account executive, you own the relationship with what we called the sponsor, which was the decision maker of purchase, the purchasing decision maker. So they decide if they renew or expand. And then we said customer value team, you own the relationship with the business owner. And they may be one and the same, the business owner and the purchaser. But we went through that process of really defining who owned the relationships. And then it became important for us to make sure that we were all in the know, all four of our teams were in the know of what was happening for that customer. And we were small at the time. We didn't have a whole lot of customers. And so we were able to solve that by meetings or having interactions over Slack, for example, versus having a system in place to be able to capture all of this. Um, Because it's easy when you all work in the same environment, right? Um, but that was something that we knew as we grew and, and to scale that, we needed a system in place to, to capture the key moments, the, the, the value, we called it the value drivers for that type of customer. And what we also found was we started off with just asking our customers, okay, what are your goals? You know, what do you want to do with the next year with our product? And we found that we had just so many different types of goals and from a product standpoint it became and an implementation standpoint it became difficult to be able to always meet our customers goals and that if we started to define what are really the key goals you should be trying to hit and talk to that with our customers we had a lot more receptive feedback from our customers on like oh yeah i didn't even think about that that's a really good goal that we should be thinking of now it didn't work for everyone um but we had a lot more standardization on what the key drivers are because we were seen as the experts, right? And a lot of times when we purchase even software that we use, we look at the software provider as the expert in those industries versus just their software provider. So that's, that's something I think that we found to be very valuable was to, to define the relationships, define what the drivers are and define the value chain and where does each of those teams fit in that value chain. Before we continue with today's guest, I just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts. It's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management, design, marketing, and a lot more. People like Megan Keeney Anderson. Megan was VP of Marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet. 
internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations. And our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt. You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview. One thing you alluded to earlier, Farhan, was when talking about the difference between these types of customer experience is just how much on the B2C side now, the customer service paradigm has shifted in recent years. You know, nowadays you call an Uber and you expect to see it moving towards you on the screen and you you order a pair of shoes online and you want to track that retail order as it moves through various stages before arriving at your door. How do you think that those shifts in expectation impact when we then engage with a customer experience team at work? You know, there's a knock-on effect there, as you said, of, oh, I expect somebody to get back to me at a weekend. And, you know, what can B2B companies do to manage expectations around that? Yeah, it's it's a big challenge, you know, like some of these companies you talked about, like Uber uh, and Amazon with their prime shipping have really, have really um, changed the way people's expectations are with the brands they interact with. And even with small, small to medium-sized companies that have to keep up with these um, expectations or they won't survive. I think it's had a, hum- a huge impact on, on how brands need to adapt to the changing needs of our customers. And I think we're seeing this paradigm shift where in the past, the companies themselves would be defining the SLAs and defining the, the ways that their customers have to interact with them. They're almost forcing them down a path and, you know, customers had, you know, not wouldn't say no choice, but their choices weren't as open as they are today. And now the shift is brands need to adapt to be able to, to be able to meet customers where they're at. And what I mean by that is you can't just continue to force people down opening a ticket. You know, you have to have other technologies, otherwise you're going to fall behind. Like people are, companies are using WhatsApp to interact with their customers. That's more on the B2C side uh, versus B2B. But the number of channels are expanding all the time. And I think B2B companies need to start to adopt some of those other channels from a perspective of knowing your customers and what they, what they need. If you, you don't need to necessarily be a trailbra- trailblazer in all of your in all B2B companies, obviously it's nice to be that way, but managing expectations is extremely important. And it's not just, I don't think managing expectations, it's about understanding what your customer's expectations are and meeting them at their expectations when you can. And I don't think B2B companies and the most of them are going to expect responses on the weekend because they're also not working on the weekend for the most part. Right. But, um, you know, I don't, that could change, you know, in the near future. And I think, being, being on top of on, on what's happening within the industries you serve is going to be important. I think what's also extremely important to help these companies stay on top of it is automation, right? There's lots of technology that's out there to help companies automate a lot of the repetitive tasks or repetitive support inquiries that are coming. And, you know, we've talked about this on the, on the webinar about chatbots and chatbots aren't new. The technology has improved recently in the last few years where that can solve, you know, probably at least 30% of most inquiries, even in B2B organizations, chatbots, user communities, where those are 24 seven, right? There's nothing stopping other users to respond to questions you have. 
you may not have people on your team responding, but that's the beauty of a user community is other people are joining in and helping you solve that. And we see how much is happening around the world with um, users helping each other out, right? There's so many different forms out there that showcase how much people want to help each other. And even in B2B world, I think that still would be the case. So I think that's another area. If, if a company hasn't adopted a user community yet, they should be thinking about that. And other areas, and I talked about this with channels, is the, the need for having social media support or social support, I should say, uh, is continuing to grow and rise. And it's not just with the big brands, it's with all brands. I think customers expect to be able to interact with the brands they choose in the channels that they feel comfortable choosing versus being forced. And social, social media channels is constantly growing and it's gonna be hard to keep up, right? You see, like, it seems like every other week there's a new, a new social media channel popping up. Like Clubhouse just popped up. Not that we support, you know, social Clubhouse, but that, they just pop up everywhere and staying on top of that's going to be tough. Yeah. And within that, actually, you know, you mentioned social media. What about the kind of this rise of social commerce that we've seen? Like that's very much a B2C trend at the moment. Do you think that that will follow? I think it's hard to say if it's going to follow in B2B. I think that's very much a B2C right now. The more challenging way to do business, I think, for, for B2B companies because of that, you know, you know, longer kind of cycle that it will take to, to make a sale. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm on Instagram, I'm going to buy that. Totally. You know, I, I, I think that what, what B2B organizations need to do is, is, is look at how, like, look at the user behaviors of like, the psychology behind the purchase intent. I think that's where they need to spend some of the time. And I think the, the opportunity for B2B companies is probably more on the customer expansion side of it. And again, maybe not through social commerce, but you know, the, how many times have you, you probably, people have made purchases where they, they just got caught up in the hype of it. And then because of the ease and the simplicity of being able to buy something, you do it versus, you know, in the past, you have to walk into a store, you can think about it, you see other options around you. And now it's just people are just pressing buttons and the psychology behind it is, is changing rapidly between what why people are making these purchase decisions. I don't think it's going to change that much in the B2B world because, again, there's probably approvals that have to happen before things can get purchased. But being able to add another license, there might not be approvals, for example, or doing a product add-on or, you know, depending on your business model, you might have, you know, packs that you can add on to your, to your existing product purchase that you have. There could be things like that, that the social commerce models can flow into the B2B world. Cause that's really, you can look at how you can gamify it from a product standpoint, but I still think B2B companies will have product purchases happening either with inside their product or within a contract, but you could probably use social commerce to direct customers into the product purchasing flow. That might be a way to look into it. Love it. Um, that, that, that scenario you described a little bit earlier is pretty much how I spent the first three months of lockdown, just absentmindedly buying things. Yeah. Um, I mean, like how many of us bought stuff on Amazon in the last year just because we had nothing else to do. I'm like, oh, let's, and then Amazon recommendations just get you all, like it gets me all the time. And then luckily I can return stuff. So it's okay. Yeah. Well, exactly. We all can. <laughs> um, and that's the great thing about, you know, B2C over B2B. You don't have to answer to anyone except yourself. Are there any other kind of emerging technologies, Farhan, before we move on, that you think 
that are being used particularly well in the B2C world that we should be adopting? Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say technologies. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I think the B2C world does really well that B2B could adopt is the, the amount of data that we have on user behaviors. And, you know, B2B companies could have this as well. I just haven't had the experience with it, unfortunately, to have so much data on understanding, you know, the way our users are using our products. Um, whenever we release a feature, we have the data to see how many people are accessing it and what way they're accessing it. You know, did they access it after we sent out a blog post? Like, we have so much data to be able to, to understand our users' behavior to make better decisions for us and to release better features for them rather than having to just send surveys out. Like, who likes to answer surveys? So I think the data capturing is a really important thing that B2B companies need to get good at. And for, for B2C, which may not be as valuable for the B2B world, is when you think about retention, um, we do a lot of analysis on retention because, again, we have the volume of users and we're month-to-month -month subscriptions. And so we do a lot of cohort analysis, which is looking at different groups. You know, we might look at our group of customers who joined in January and compare them to those who joined in February and so on. And you can do monthly cohort analysis, which we do, uh, and start to get better understanding of why did one cohort do better than the other and, you know, do better at what? Do better at retention, do better at activation, do better at you can answer what that question is. And when you can be able to do it at a cohort level, you can get a lot better insights into user behaviors and what actually moves the needle on certain things. I think from a retention standpoint, B2B companies may not get a lot of value out of that, but I think from a product adoption or user behavior of their product features, cohort analysis would be really good. We'd also do a lot of experimentation. Experimentation in terms of if we release a webinar, we want to be able to make sure that we can follow our, our, our attendance to the webinar and again, do a cohort analysis, compare them to those who didn't attend the webinar to see if whatever features we talked about in that webinar, the feature usage goes up and stays up for a period of time. Again, doing some experiments and then the cohort analysis afterwards is another really good way to understand, again, what, what are the things that are going to make an impact versus having to wait, you know, six months to 12 months to see if things are actually making an impact. So I think not again technology trends, but more data analysis trends that B2C companies do really well. Love it. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. So before we wrap up then, Farhan, what next? Have you any big plans or projects for 2021? Yeah, we've got, we've got lots. Some of the things I talked about, we haven't yet implemented at later. So the chatbot is one of our big projects that we're implementing this year. And we have big plans for the chatbot. It's going to be phased implementation. I see chatbot as starting as a reactive chatbot, meaning someone has a question, the chatbot can respond, and moving into proactive, which is, you know, training the chatbot to detect certain user behaviors and then prompting the user with other pieces of content that we might have. So, for example, if the user seems to be getting stuck somewhere on a page, there's an error message, the chatbot can prompt them and say, hey, have you tried this? Or here's, a, here's an article that may help you before the user even reaches out to us. Or if they're on our subscription page, the chatbot can respond and say, looks like you're having, a, you know, looks like you're interested in our pricing plans. You need help on selecting the right uh, package for you, for example. So I think the chatbot is a really, it's a long, it's a longer project for us, but it's a really important one for us. The other one is we also haven't launched our user community. We have a Slack-based community, which is really more about social engagement, but we want to have a full-blown user online community. 
So those are the two big projects for us and value-based support, like I talked about, we're, we're hoping to launch that in the second half of the year. Fantastic. That all sounds brilliant. And given this series is all about hearing how companies scale their growth, before we go, I would love to know if there was a key event in your career that helped you scale professionally. Yeah, I would say joining my first startup. When I joined, there were about 40 employees and about 10 customers. And when I left, there's about 450-ish employees and about 110 customers, enterprise big customers. So customer growth was still quite substantial in the five years I was there. That was, I mean, when you work in a startup and if you're fortunate enough to work in a small startup, you get to just do so many things that you typically wouldn't get opportunities to do in larger companies because everyone has to wear multiple hats and you get uh, not just opportunities to, to do different things. Startups just, they work really fast. There's not a lot of bottlenecks in processes. There's not a lot of processes, which is why you get to get to do things really fast and you get to try out new things as well. And uh, that for me was my inflection point for how I grew professionally really fast. I went from being a project manager to managing a team for the first time and getting to do it myself and learn and grow through mentorship of people in the company without a lot of formal guidelines and whatnot. And I'm a big believer of experiential learning, meaning that you just have to get in there and do it and you'll learn as you do. And you get that a lot in startups. Brilliant. I'm much the same. Um, so lastly, Farhan, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work? The best for me, I'd say, is LinkedIn. I love chatting with people. So reach out to me on LinkedIn and uh, we can connect there. Super. We can link to that in the show notes. Well, listen, it's a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, you as well, Dee. I appreciate uh, having me on your podcast and look forward to all the future ones that you guys have. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Farhan Berji. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps people like you find their way to our podcast. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Inside Intercom for you. We hope you'll join us.